I'm going to try something different. I'm going to stand right here, and I'm not going to be up in the pulpit, partially because we're doing uh, devotional. So, um, and when I say devotional, I mean I'm teaching you biblical things without necessarily, well, I'll leak into preaching every now and then, but um, <laughs> it's just a little different uh, today. I just wanted to, I guess, get a little closer. Thank you. Uh, a little closer to you guys so that we can have a little bit of family time, in a sense, even though I am teaching from up here. It's really good to see you all, um, and uh, you know, I'm sure some of you are wondering why we're taking a break from our uh, Why We Believe series and uh, doing a devotional tonight, so let me kind of explain what's going on. Um, so tonight, we were supposed to go over what the Bible teaches regarding gender and sexuality, but because those two topics are so important, I wanted to separate those two instead of trying to cover all of those things all at once. And, uh, bec- and because I had to separate those two and I wanted to do them back to back, it was kind of like, well, we have to move it because there are other uh, people that uh, the schedule affects. So um, that's why we moved it. And um, it's actually a good, Id- it, was a, it was a good opportunity for us to be able to um, actually get together and talk a little bit about joint heirs because we're almost at our one year mark. And uh, I just wanted to have a check in with you guys um, so that we can be on the same, on the same page and um, even put some of you at ease, because I know that uh, many of you know, if, even if you have forgotten, that joint heirs, uh, we were on a trial basis. We were put together on a trial basis, uh, and so we were going to figure out what to do after the year was over, and then we were going to either continue on with joint heirs, or we were going to revert back to um, ETC and light. And... Um, I just want to let you, you guys know that after talking with the elders, we have decided that we're going to continue on. Okay, so we don't have to worry about what would happen if we split up all over again. Um, we're going to be here together. Um, and the reason why I'm letting you know that is, you know, to put you guys at ease, but also because I wanted to remind you guys when it comes to the philosophy of this ministry, the reason why we're here, the reason why we want to... Um, that we wanted to bring the fellowship groups together is because we wanted to see if we could serve the church better by providing more avenues of discipleship, um, encouraging a wider range of fellowship between those who are careers and those who are grad school and those who are in college. Um, you know, technically speaking, we're all adults, right? We're all young adults. So, um, but another thing it reflects too is that together, men and women of different ages, life stages, socioeconomic statuses and cultural backgrounds they can get together encourage one another challenge one another serve one another and disciple one another demonstrating how the cross breaks down the dividing walls to form one body in Jesus Christ right that's Ephesians 2 and so um, that's kind of why we brought these these uh, different life stages together and, you know, even with this good news, I thought it would still be really important for us to examine the principles that this ministry was founded upon as a way of reminder, as well as to encourage you all to think how we can apply these principles in the way that we live life together, especially now that we're no longer in our trial phase of existence. So before we take a devotional look at the biblical principles that drive this ministry, let's, ta- uh, let's take some time to pray. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to you for just all that you've done and uh, all that you are. And Lord, we're grateful that in Christ, we are one body. And because we're one body, we can 
love one another, take care of one another, exhort one another, come alongside and challenge one another, all because of Christ. Even though many of us do have different experiences, we do have different backgrounds, we bring different personalities to the table, we are one in Christ. And because of that, we exist as the church. And as we examine the, the principles and, and the building blocks that this fellowship is built upon, we pray that you would receive much honor, much glory as we strive to live out this Christian faith that you've given us. And we pray that we might strive to honor you in all of it. And so uh, give us ears to hear, Lord, and may your word accomplish its purpose in our lives. It's your sons and we pray. Amen. Well, um, the first, the first uh, commitment that we have, the first, um, yeah, the first commitment that we have as a fellowship group is a commitment to the word of God. Right, a commitment to the word of God. The first and foremost principle we are founded upon is, well, the word of God itself. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 says this, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 2 Peter 1, 3 says this. It says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And then one more passage for you. Hebrews 4, verse 12 says this, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When we look at the word of God, the thing that we are founded upon, the thing that we are most committed to, the reason why we are committed, in, committed to it and we're founded upon it is because the word of what the word of God says about itself. Right? It says that it is the inerrant and God-breathed word. That means it contains no errors whatsoever and that it has been breathed forth by God. And so because of that, we believe that the Bible is authoritative and sufficient to help us deal with all the issues that we face today. We don't need to look for ways to make the Bible relevant because the Word of God has always been relevant. Or if I can rephrase that, the Word of God is always relevant. It is living and active. This doesn't mean that the truths change over time. It's not the way that some people read the Constitution or say that we should read the Constitution. It is fixed. It is fixed. It doesn't mean that it, the Bible needs to be updated to address the issues of today. Rather, it's the other way around. We have to understand how today's issues relate to the Bible. It's a complete shift in thinking. We don't make this relevant. It already is. We have to be relevant to it. Right? If you really want to be relevant as a Christian, brothers and sisters, you cannot focus on how to become more acceptable to the culture. You need to make sure that you are relevant to the only person that matters, and that's God. Relevancy has always been about how you are relevant to God. Any other kind of relevancy? Doesn't matter. We must humble ourselves and submit ourselves to mighty God and what he has revealed about himself through the scriptures. We're not to humble him and submit him to the ebb and flow of culture. And so that's why we're committed to the word of God. Because we understand that because it is from God, it reflects him in its nature, right? So it's perfect in everything. 
Ultimately, we try and demonstrate our commitment and our loyalty to God and his word through the preaching of his word on Friday nights. Our goal in our Why We Believe series was not necessarily to be a comprehensive systematic theology series, um, but it was to highlight certain areas of doctrine that are important for us to broadly understand as believers, or even ones that are crucial for us to, to really think about, uh, to think about it critically and biblically and engaging with the culture at the same time. 1 Peter 3.15 reminds us that we must be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks us to give an account for the hope that is in us, yet with gentleness and with reverence. Right, so, brothers and sisters, the reason why I tell you this is because since this word is relevant, always has been, always will be, and we must submit to it, we need to know our Bibles. We need to know it well. We don't, we don't need to be perfect in it, right, but we, we do need to know our Bibles. And the reason why we preach is because we want you to know the word in a way that you might not necessarily get on your own. Um, in, in, a, in a shepherd's conference message that Steve Lawson gave this year, uh, he brought up some old Puritans, and he was saying, what would you rather have, 20 hours of your own independent Bible study or 20 hours of a man who has been trained to study the word of God, to dig out its treasures, to dig out its truths, and to proclaim it to you and say, thus says the Lord. And that's not saying that it's not important for you guys to study your own Bibles. Okay, That's not at all saying that instead of your own personal Bible reading times, you should substitute it with only listen, listening to podcasts and sermons. Uh, that's not what, what I'm saying in that. But there is a difference, right, brothers and sisters? There is a difference that comes at times uh, when you hear the preaching of, of God's word, when you hear the forcefulness that comes from a man who's studied the word and he's saying, this is what God says. Please listen to it. Right, there's a difference there. And you know, one of the things, the cool things that we don't always see is how interconnected the scriptures are. Right? We might not necessarily make those connections on our own, but those who, have, who know how to study the word of God can make those connections for us, can help us see what we haven't seen before. Right? And it opens up an entire world to us where we actually see how cool God is. Right, sometimes I say that to the high schools. I'm like, guys, God's cool, and he is, right? It's, oftentimes it's in a very nerdy way, but he is really cool, right? He's really cool. He works in such magnificent ways that when you study theology, your mind should be blown, and you should be in awe and in wonder of the God that we worship because it's like, whoa, I can't believe that you did all that. And yet you still consider me nothing but dirt. And you save me. That's incredible. Now, when it comes to the word of God, I understand that it is really, really hard. You know, some things are admittedly hard. In 2 Peter uh, 3, 14 to 18, Peter, he's talking about the scriptures. Right? He's talking about the scriptures and he's admitting to people, uh, the people that he's writing to, that the scriptures can be hard. Um, in verse uh, 14, he, he says this, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you 
as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. Now, notice a couple things there. Okay, when he's talking about, when Peter is talking to his audience about the scriptures, he actually elevates Paul's writings, Paul's letters, up to the level of scripture, right? Which means that also the other New Testament authors were also now relegated to the level of scripture. It's no longer just the Old Testament. It's all of the Bible is scripture. And not only that, though, Peter's even saying, guys, sometimes I don't even understand what Paul's saying. Right? And so if you don't understand what Paul's saying, it's okay. Peter didn't understand it either sometimes. But yet, at the same time, even though he says some of the things Paul writes is hard to understand, he still says that we still need to strive to learn and to teach, right? Because he says here, there's an implicit warning that's here. He says here, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction, Peter is warning us, saying, if we play fast and loose with the text and try and make it say what, we don't, what, what it doesn't say, what we want it to say, we have to be very careful because it is to our own destruction. Um, so we have to be very, very careful when it comes to teaching, okay? when it comes to preaching. When we say, thus says the Lord, you better make sure that the Lord said it because if he didn't say it, it is not good because you're just basically making him out to be a liar. Now, the preaching time here for this fellowship also functions as a training ground for those who have proven character, who teach well, and they aspire to the preaching ministry. Not everyone is called to do it, and that is okay. All right? Brothers, if you do not come up here and preach, if we don't invite you up here to the pulpit to preach, that is okay. If you don't aspire to that, that is okay. You are no less a Christian if you do not aspire to that ministry, to this ministry right here, okay, this is not for everyone. Um, but for those godly men who do aspire to the ministry of the word, to the preaching ministry of the word, we do want to provide an opportunity for them to grow and to learn. And we're going to make sure, we're going to make sure that those we call to preach, those we ask to preach, are men of good character, that they're righteous, that they fit the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. But this is where we also have to remember that we have to extend to them some grace too, right? Because when our peers get up here and they preach the word of God to us, sometimes it's like, bro, I know you, right? I know you. I know what you're like. That's not your voice. That's what someone said to me one time. That's not your voice. I was like, oh, okay, but was the content good at least? Right. Um, right. And, and sometimes when we, look, when we look at the people who come up here, we're like, dude, I know you. Right. You better watch what you say because I know what you've said. And this is where we have to be humble. Right. We have to be humble. We have to consider who they are and their character. And we have to remember that we're all sinners and that we're all in process. Okay, we're all in process. Don't lift yourself up above them and judge them because you know them and you know their sins. What is more important than a sanitized picture of whoever is up here is whether there is an upward trajectory of godliness in their lives. That is the most important thing. Granted, I want for everyone who comes up to this, to this pulpit and preaches the word to be right before God, and I, want to make sure, you know, I would want to make sure that Everything that they do from up here is spotless before the Lord. 
Yet, at the same time, I understand that we're all sinners. Right? And there can be people who come up here from time to time, whether it's here on, uh, for joining us on Fridays or even perhaps on Sundays, that there are times when guys can come up to the pulpit and they can preach with wrong motives. And that's where we actually have to adjust a little bit and remember Paul in Philippians 1. Right? Paul in Philippians 1, he says, hey, there are guys out there who are trying to cause me to stress by preaching the gospel for their own gain. They're thinking that if they can make themselves more popular than me, that I'm going to be distressed while I'm in prison and I can't do anything about it. And he, what does he say? What's his response? I don't care. I don't care. So long as the gospels preach, I don't care. Even if it's with wrong motives, as long as they preach the right gospel, praise be to God. And brothers and sisters, when we listen to the, to the men who aspire to the ministry come up here, that's the main thing that you need to be thinking about and paying attention to. Okay, we want to make sure at all times that we hear the word preached rightly. If something's in their heart and we can't, and you know, it's in their heart, right? We can't see it, so we can't judge them for it. So extend some grace, okay? Now, this is not going to be the first place, though, that we throw people if they aspire to this ministry. We're going we're gonna to observe their lives. I'll probably have them come teach in high school, Sunday school, or somewhere else before we bring them up here before you, okay? Because we do want to protect the pulpit, okay? That being said, even though I said that this is, this is a training ground, we do want to protect the pulpit. Uh, we want to protect the pulpit, and ultimately, we want to care for you all. And we want to care for every single one of you. That's the reason why we protect the, the pulpit. It's because we love you. And we want to make sure that whoever steps into this pulpit to preach the word, that they love the Lord, that they have good character, and that they are faithful with the small tasks. Because we know, and see, this is the thing that, that drives me and the, the thing that makes me fearful of bringing many people up here. We know the warning that's in James 3, right? Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in, in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well, right? So we understand, we understand that there is a great danger that to, to this uh, preaching and teaching ministry. So that's another reason why we're going to watch. We're going to watch for character. We're going to watch for godliness, and that's what we want to see. And if they fool us and they fool you, you can be rest assured in this in one thing, that they cannot fool God, right? They cannot fool God, and, that, and he's the one that we entrust ourselves to, Right. We, we don't, you know, uh, we don't entrust ourselves to anything else other than God, and to anyone else other than God. Right. He's the one that we trust to, trust. So anyway, just wanted to emphasize the word of God and preaching. So we want to provide learning and growing opportunities for those who have the godly aspiration to these goals. It might be slow to get there, right? It might be slow to get here. You can come up to me tonight and say, Pastor Roger, I want to preach. Get me on that track. And I'll be like, okay, we'll see. And then we'll, I'll be working with you. And then you might not get up here until next year, but... That's, it's, it's slow, right? Because I need to observe your character. I need to make sure that you are walking closely with God and that you're not just doing this because you want to look good. Okay, we want to protect you and the flock. So that's why it's going to be slow. That's why it's going to be uh, super intentional. And that leads us to the second principle that Joint Heirs is founded upon, which is a commitment to discipleship. Commitment to discipleship. So uh, in addition to our desire to minister to you through the preaching of the word, we want to make sure, we want to demonstrate our, that commitment to the ministry of the word through discipleship in its informal and formal sense. 
Now, while we will always champion the importance of preaching to you because God has ordained for his people to grow through preaching, we also want to provide a way for you to process what you've learned or even build upon that knowledge base with other people in church. And I also understand that implementation, or if you want to use the not-so-nice word, execution, will, not, will vary depending on how willing people are to invest in the group, how transparent they want to be, or um, even just how our personalities mix. Our earnest desire is that our love for one another will drive us to minister to one another through the only thing that can bring life change, and that is the Word of God. Now, I know you've heard this verse a lot lately, but I will return your attention there anyway, because it's the Bible and it's good for you. Matthew 28, 19 to 20, and it reminds us that our goal is to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that. Who commanded us? Who is it? Jesus, right? That's right, Jesus. We make known what he has commanded us so that all may follow him and bring glory to God. Now, we normally use that passage to speak about the importance of missions because of the presence of that word nations in verse 19. But let me, let me remind you that while we desire to make Christ known in the nations, there's also another aspect of the command that we have to observe, that we have to remember to obey, and that is we must teach everyone who believes to observe his commandments. Okay? It's not just making Christ known, it's observing his commandments, And so uh, something that I've actually heard recently that was really quite interesting is that if you look at the the scriptures, the term discipleship disappears from the scriptures after Jesus ascends. The term disciple or discipleship disappears from the scripture. They don't use that word anymore. Everything that we would, every word that we would recognize as a form of discipleship is replaced with verbs uh, with, with the verbs teach or instruct. And it doesn't mean that we're using the word discipleship wrong, but it's almost intentional that there's this change in the biblical text from discipling to teaching and instructing. And that is because the purpose of discipleship is not to become like the person who, is, who you're meeting up with. Right? It's not to become like the persons you're meeting up with, but it's to be like Jesus. Discipleship is always about you being like Jesus. Not about you meeting up with someone else at Starbucks. Okay, turn to John 15 real quick. Actually, it might not be quick, but turn to John 15. Okay, John 15. Uh, here we have the familiar analogy that Jesus gives us of him being the vine and God the Father being the vine dresser. Now let's take a look at what this passage has to say and understand the implications that Jesus himself is laying down for us. Okay, verse 1 says this, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Few observations from these verses. If we're truly one with Christ, right? If we're one of the branches or the offshoots of the vine, then we're going to be a natural part of the vine, right? As a whole, it's not like you have a vine and then the branches are off, scattered, separated from the vine, right? We're integrated into the vine. We're tied into the main branch of that vine, and that vine is Jesus. Notice too. Then Jesus says that if a branch does not bear fruit, God takes that branch away. That is a word of warning for those who think that they're believers. They say that they're believers, but are actually not believers because they have no relationship with Jesus. Okay, we know that this doesn't refer to someone who lost, uh, quote, lost their salvation, unquote, because we also know that those whom, uh, those whom God gives Jesus... He does not lose, yeah? You remember that? He says, I'm the good shepherd. The ones that the Father gives me, I will not lose. So it cannot refer to those who are saved. So the ones who are being taken away are those who say, I believe in Jesus, but they have no relationship with Jesus. Or this is that Matthew 7 thing, right? Where it's like, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all these things in my name? And he says to you, I don't even know you. That's, that's the person that's being talked about here, right? And the the what we see here is that the evidence of their lack of relationship with Jesus is the fact that there is no fruitfulness in their life. That they don't live their life in a way that bears spiritual fruit. You know, Galatians 5. Those spiritual qualities of someone who is growing as a mature believer is not present in their life. The way that they glorify God the way that they act, the deeds that they do, the care for others, it's not there. And that's how we know who really is a believer and who isn't a believer. It's through the observation of their life. But it doesn't, necess- it doesn't mean, though, that you are saved by doing these good works. Because we also see that those who are a part of the vine and bear fruit will be, uh, or, um, who, who bear fruit, these are the ones that, God himself maintains. He maintains the ones who truly belong to him. And we see that in the fact that God, he prunes, he prunes, or if you've heard about pruning before, you trim, right, parts of the branch, parts of the the plant so that it can grow, you can get some more control, but ultimately so that it can grow more. Right? So that we can bear more fruit. So there's an indication here that God is the one who actively works in your life to cause you to bear fruit. Right? So if you have no relationship with him and you're therefore not bearing any fruit, that's the reason why he casts you out. Right? But the, when he reaches down and he saves you, 
right? He, and, you know, oftentimes we talk about, um, we, talk, we, we rightly talk about the fact that you are saved by faith. Yes? Yes? You guys are making me nervous. Okay. <laughs> We're saved by faith, right? But what I, as some of you have heard me say this before, I'll, I'll remind you again, faith does nothing. Right? Faith does nothing. It is zero action. And when I say zero action, I mean it does nothing. Right? It, faith is zero action. When you look at Ephesians 2 and it says that you are saved. Oh, actually, I don't know. What does it say? Right? It says you are saved by grace through faith. So the thing that saves you is not your faith. It's not the act of believing in itself, but it's the grace that God gives you, the grace that he uses to supernaturally deliver you from your sins, to give you a new heart. That is the grace that allows you to respond to truth in faith. And that is how God saves you. Grace is not God being nice. Grace is God using his divine, supernatural power to intervene into your life situation to save you. That's what God's grace is. It's not just him being nice, but it is his power to save you. And so this is what we see, right? He's the one who gives you grace so that you can have faith. And as he does so, he also enables you to do good works. And when it says here that you'll produce much fruit after you're pruned, it's not indicating what kind of suffering that you might go through. It's not, it might not necessarily be persecution. It could be trials, or it could be vice versa, or it could be all of it. But what we recognize here is that God, through painful warning experiences, allows for us to experience these things so that our spiritual lives can be enriched in a way that we could, have ne- we could have never experienced it if he didn't allow for us to experience this pruning. So brothers and sisters, do not despise trials. Do not despise suffering. I know that's hard to hear because who likes trials? Right? Who likes suffering? No one likes it. Right? But what I encourage you to do is Remember God's purpose in the suffering and to embrace that suffering as a welcome friend, even though at times it is very much so a unwelcome friend. Because you know that the God who holds you in his hand and who cares for you, who's adopted you into his own family, he's the one who sustains you, he's the one who loves you, and he's the one who will allow for you to stand up under the temptation to despair, to curse him, to reject him so that you can be strong and so that after you've suffered, you can go and tell your brothers and sisters what God has done for you and you can help them also understand the goodness of God in a way that you would have never understood it had you not suffered. Now notice in verse eight, verse eight, God is glorified when we bear much fruit and prove to be Jesus' disciples. While doing good works and caring for people does not make you save, it is proof that we are Jesus' disciples, which is why in verse 10, he says, if we keep his commandments, we abide in his love just as, 
Right, so this is similarity here, just as he has kept God, the Father's commandments, and abides in his love. The way that we obey Jesus and do what he says is, is a mirror of what he does to God. Right, so when we tell you about God's commands, and we tell you about, or when we tell you about what Jesus commands, what Jesus demands of your life, and we encourage you and exhort you to go do it, and what we have to remember is that we're actually keeping in the same vein of what he has done to God the Father. Right? He's not asking us to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself. And that should be encouraging to all of us. Right? And, and we, we know that from Hebrews, that he's, he identifies with us in every way. Right? He was tempted in every way, but he is our perfect high priest because he did not sin. Right? He was tempted in every way, but did not sin. So he identifies with us in that. So remember who holds you in his hands. Remember who loves you. Remember who saves you. Now, as you can see through this quick survey of John 15, part of the necessary discipleship that must take place in the lives of every believer is that we are unified with Christ, right? That we're one with him. And that we take part of the fruits or deeds that he has called for us to do. Remember Ephesians 2.10. It says that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that... We would sit at home and do nothing. No, so that we would walk in them. And some of these good works that God calls us to do, it's not limited to us on our own as if we're spiritual secret agents on individual missions that have no intersection with anyone else. A lot of times, the good works that we do, such as taking care of those who are widowed or those who are orphaned, are things that we do for other people. There are things that we do with other people. And so as we are committed to the work of discipleship, we are committed to teaching one another and encouraging one another to live lives of spiritual fruitfulness before God. If others don't know how to do it, God has provided those who are spiritually mature, that's most of you, even if it's only by a little, to come alongside those who are younger to help grow them in their faith. And that's not just growing in knowledge of Jesus and the Bible and theology. God doesn't care about how much you know up here. He does not care about how much you know up here. What he cares about is how much you live out from up here in here. That's what he cares about. Knowing about Jesus, knowing about your Bible, knowing theology, they're all very, very important things to know. I want for you guys to know those things. But what is more important is the fact that you live out those truths. That's why in James 1.22, it reminds, James reminds believers who know what righteousness is, to prove themselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves into thinking that they're righteousness. Hey, catch what James is saying. He says, if, basically what James is saying is, if you just hear the word and you do nothing, you delude yourself into thinking that you know what righteousness is. And the reason why you delude yourself is because you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. And that's why he says, Therefore, be doers of the word and not merely hearers. Right? And so the conclusion of that is the Christian faith is meant to be theology put into action. Theology put into action. What does your knowledge of God and all that he has done for you lead you to do for those who are unsaved and for those who are saved? Discipleship helps us walk alongside other believers to spur them on in this manner. The entire chapter of Titus 2 sets the tone 
for how we as believers are to behave once we have heard sound doctrine. As a result of what we've been taught about God, we are to change and grow into godly individuals. And as we do so, we pass these things down to others so that when they interact with other people in the world, they will prove the power of God to save. They will show God is worth it. He is glorious. He is worthy of all praise. And this is why my life is testimony of what God can do in the life of a sinner. Truth be told to you, brothers and sisters, some of you may have a deeper knowledge of God compared to those who have been in this church for a long time, especially considering the resources that are available to you. They didn't have sermons available to them at the click of a mouse. Uh, One of our dear saints uh, who was in the hospital recently, I had a chance to talk to him, and he was telling me how when he needed to prep for, for Sunday school, after he got off work, he would hop on BART and go over to Oakland to the Christian bookstore over there, grab a bunch of books, and then come home. You and I, all we have to do is just open up our phones and just search for whatever we want, right? That's, that's how easy it is for us now, but that's not how easy it was for them then. And so some of our older saints in the church, they might, their, their depth of knowledge might not be that good, right? But what we have to consider, brothers and sisters, is the breadth of their knowledge. How long have they walked with God? The amount of time that they spent in the church and the amount of time that they have lived the Christian life, yeah, at times it might not necessarily be the most accurate thing in the world, but it's helpful because they can illustrate to us what eyes of faith look like. Right? When we suffer, when we endure disappointment, the experience of our older brothers and sisters who have walked with the Lord for a long time, can provide perspective for us. We tend to turn inwards when we need help, right? When we need insight, we turn inwards. We either look to ourselves or we look to our peers. And your peers can only help you as much as, as, as far as they've gone, right? If you're, if, um, yeah, in terms of life experience, they can only help you as, as far as they've gone. Right? But the reason why we don't dis, disregard our older brothers and sisters in the faith, is because they've walked with God long. And when they walk with God long, there are things that they've seen, there are things that they've heard that can be a great benefit to us. And then there's a back and forth that comes too. right? Because even as you might know a little bit more theology, you can interact with what they're saying, or you can ask questions. You can bring subtle, uh, subtle corrections to what they're saying. But as you have that back and forth, you are in turn participating in discipleship with them. There's a back and forth that happens within the body of God as we seek to humbly spur each other on towards Christ-likeness. And that's why, that's why Hebrews 10, you guys know this, Hebrews 10, 22, 25 tells us that we are to consider how we can stimulate one another towards love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together, but encouraging one another even more as we see the day of Christ drawing near. Even more as you see the day of Christ drawing near. Right? Not less, even more. And you all know that every day that passes, we are drawing nearer and nearer to the return of our Lord.
right? And this is why we are to not forsake the gathering of one another, but to continue to come and meet together and to spur each other on towards love and good deeds, right? We value the church in coming to the church even when you're tired or perhaps don't feel like it, not because we're trying to impose on you some legalistic standard. God doesn't take church attendance. We might, but God doesn't. The reason why we want to come to church, though, is because God the Father has designed for the church to be an organic whole, a body, that ministers and cares for its own members. A body that works in harmony and unity toward the goal of glorifying God, which is why you conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. You die to self because it's not about you. It's always about him about him and his purposes for the church. If your toes decided that it was better for them to not be a part of you and just left your body, that would really suck, wouldn't it? Now, those of you who have better education than me know that that's not possible. It's just not possible for your, your own cells to say, you know what, I don't, I'm done with you. Like, I've... I'm kind of sick and tired of being in you. I've been with you for 30 years, so I'm just going to go head off right now, and I'm going to go try something else. That's not how your body works, and that's not how the church works. It's not how the church works. We come together as family. We're one body in Christ. And, and brothers and sisters, we should not, we cannot despise those who are younger than us or those who are older than us. We are to care for the entire body of Christ, humbly learning from those who have spiritual insights or encouragements that we need to hear or humbly teaching or ministering to those who need to be encouraged toward greater spiritual maturity, as is age appropriate too. And I don't want you grabbing any of my middle schoolers and saying, why aren't you like Jesus? They're young, they'll get there, Okay. But we are to seek discipleship while we at the same time do the work of disciple making. Okay, you hear that? Seek discipleship while you're discipling. Don't think that you need to get to a certain point before you are now ready to go disciple. As you're being discipled, you in turn go and care for others. You in turn go minister to others. It should be kind of like... um, those, uh, those little fountains where it's just dripping all the way down, like in, like in a, like a staircase. All right, okay, fine, like a waterfall with multiple levels. Right? That's what it should be like. As you're being poured into, you pour out into others, and that should be the same thing that other people do. Right? And at the church, that's what it should look like. It should be always you're being poured into, you pour out. You, and they, pour, they get poured into, they pour out. At this church, it tends to be I get poured into and it gets stuck here, and I do not pour out. That cannot happen. We have to continue to pour out, continue to pour out. But that also means, though, that you have to be poured into, yes? Because if you don't get poured into, if you don't grow yourself, there's going to be nothing to pour out at, at some point. Right? So you need to be discipled. Now, what does this discipleship look like? Well, many of you, through your experiences at other churches, you think of discipleship as that formal one-on-one discipleship meeting where you meet up with people at a coffee shop and you have a book in hand and you're sitting there and you're, you know, you're praying in public and you're 
trying to make sure that your discipler doesn't pray too loud because it's really embarrassing to be praying loud at Starbucks um, as you're talking about Bible stuff, right? That's the kind of discipleship that you're used to, right? The one-on-one stuff. Or maybe it's at their homes. I don't know. Right? Uh, and that's definitely one form of discipleship. It's a valid form of discipleship, but that's not the only form of discipleship that can take place. Honestly, I like those kind of, of meetups because, um, you know, we get to talk, we get to catch up on life, and we get to think about how we can apply biblical principles to our lives. And it's fun. And it's encouraging. And it takes way too much time. <laughs> right? Because some of you know, some of you know that, that you love meetups, you love discipleship, but rarely does it go 30 minutes, right? It's rarely 30 minutes. It's usually like an hour or two, maybe three, right? And then you're just like, oh, man, I'm so done with meetups. I don't have time for meetups. And acknowledging that, and acknowledging that discipleship doesn't always look like that, that's the reason why I would also like to try and, uh, why I also like to try and practice uh, living life with people, right? Using the mundane and sanctifying that time so that you can minister to them while you're getting stuff done. Hey, there's productivity for you. Right? You don't want to talk about stewardship. Let's, let's, talk about, let's talk about making the mundane tasks of our lives something that we can uh, bring other people alongside uh, us and, and use that to the glory of God. <clears throat> and that's what we would call informal or life-on-life discipleship. And um, and you can do that by just going to the grocery store, right? going to Costco, going to Target, and using that time while you're walking through the aisles and grabbing stuff to talk about life and godliness. And sometimes when I talk about life, I mean like, hey, what kind of, uh, what kind of bleach do you use? Because I've got this stain in my house that needs to get taken care of, and I'm not sure which thing to, to use for it. Right? What do you do there? And then they're teaching you, right? And then you go back to talking about godliness. And it's like, hey, so help me understand how to live is Christ works out in our lives. Well, we're doing it right now because Christ is in everything and not just on the top of the list. Right, anyway, um, right. but this is, this, is, this is life on life discipleship. It's talking about Jesus, and this is not something that we're used to doing, right? but talking about Jesus outside of church. <gasps> we barely do that at lunch, right? Sometimes you go to lunch and you're hoping for good fellowship over the table. We talk about one point in the, in the message and then we just revert back to, hey, what are the Niners doing? Or other things, right? It's hard to talk about Jesus sometimes, right? but we have to get in the practice of doing it. Here we have to get in the practice of doing it. Um, those of you who know me well, or, you know, People here who know me well, they will tell you that I am definitely not perfect, okay? Not perfect. Um, and even though I know things about the scriptures, I know how to study it, I know how to teach it, I'm still in process when it comes to seeing how faith intersects with everyday life. And every godly individual that you know is in process. No one is as holy as you think they are, right? We, all, we put people who are godly up on a pedestal and we think that they got their life put together and everything like that. You just spend five minutes with them in the craziness of their own home, and you'll realize that that they're not. But the cool thing about this, the cool thing about this, about life-on-life discipleship, is that it allows for you, actually, sorry, it allows for others to see you battle your deficiencies and try and submit yourself to Christ. I'm not perfect, but I'm trying to honor God in the way that I respond to these things. 
And that's what we want people to see. We want people to see that in their real problems, they can choose to respond differently. When someone's giving you grief and they are unfair and they are hurtful and they've stabbed you in the heart and in the back and they're twisting the knife, you can choose to respond differently even though it hurts, even though you are devastated, even though you may be brought to tears. You can choose not to respond in anger, not to respond with words in kind, but you can choose to demonstrate Christ-likeness to that person and love them, even though they are not being at all loving to you. If you saw that, wouldn't that be amazing? If you see one of our moms dealing with her kids and her kids are going crazy. They're bouncing off the wall and you see her lovingly take her kid aside while the other one's still causing trouble and ministering to them, looking them straight in the eye and lovingly but firmly telling them why they're doing, uh, why what they're doing is wrong and is a sin before God and that they must stop. Sometimes sometimes with uh, physical discipline, hopefully not in your sight. Does, not, does that not tell you what true love looks like? Does that not tell you what true godly parenting looks like? Because in our minds, we just think, oh, just yell at them. All right, just give them a time out. Or I don't even know how to handle someone, some, some kid who's having a complete meltdown in front of me. But when you see that in a godly individual who you love and you respect, it's informing. It's helpful. It's helping you see, oh, that's what Christian parenting ought to look like. That's what I should strive to achieve. Right? And it gives you more realistic expectations. And so when you get in that position and you fail, you're not like, I am the worst parent in the world. But you're like, no, this is right on par for the course. And that's why it's good for us to to observe older people in our lives right, and see how they live out the faith because they can help us understand things that we would not understand on our own. When we allow people to see our deficiencies, they can see what Christ has been teaching us. They can be encouraged or given a model of how Christians ought to live even if no such model exists in their lives. So brothers and sisters, stop pretending like you have your life all together. Stop striving after the approval of men. We know that you're a sinner because we're in the same boat as you. And your ability to know everything biblically or theologically is not what God is calling for you to do before you can minister to others. Right? It is to follow the model of Paul as he tells the Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. Right? It's a mindset of, I am not as sanctified as I ought to be, but I am striving to be as much like Jesus as I can with God's help. And even though I'm not perfect, would you join me and strive to be like Christ with me? That is the goal of life-on-life discipleship. Wherever, whenever, let us strive together to demonstrate Christ-likeness, to push each other on towards Christ-likeness. And you can have those conversations at Target, Costco, or in line at Space Mountain. Um, You can have all those conversations. I've had conversations with some of you in, in line at Disneyland, exhorting you and encouraging you to greater faith. You can, you, you can sanctify the common 
all the time. And that's what, that's what we call it. And the life on life is sanctifying the common. You can sanctify the common at all times, right? When, when it comes to like, hey, let's do a service project. Let's cook food for people who need food. Right? Let's minister to those who, who need meal ministry. And as you're doing that, not only should you be cooking and having fun with one another, have a good time and talk about what God's been teaching you in your life, right? This is doable. This is possible. You can sanctify the common. Consider the example of Jonathan Edwards. He's one of the greatest American preachers ever known. And in one of his famous resolutions that he wrote when he was a teenager, he wrote this. On the supposition that there never was to be but one individual in the world at any one time who who was properly a complete Christian in all respects of a right stamp, having Christianity always shining in its true luster and appearing excellent and lovely from whatever part and under whatever character viewed, resolved to act just as I would do if I strove with all my might to be that one who should live in my time. That's old English. It's hard to understand. Essentially, what Edwards is saying is this. If there is such thing as only uh, as being the godliest person in a generation, I want to be that person. He wanted to be the godliest person in his generation. And that could possibly sound selfish or prideful, but Steve Lawson, in his message at Shepherd's Conference this year, argued against such thinking and such claims and says, do you think anyone wants to be the worst Christian in their generation? No, right? You shouldn't be like, it is my goal and my life's desire to be the worst possible Christian ever. That is not your goal, right? And brothers and sisters, this is our goal then, to be the most godly people that we can possibly be in this life. And that is the goal of discipleship. That is the goal that we should adopt, that we, that we should have as a thing that drives us in our mind, to be the godliest people in our generation and to pass that godliness on in every aspect of life to others, knowing that the goal of godliness is not to hoard it to ourselves, but to pass it on so that God can get the glory. When you have people who take attention off self and do everything to the glory of God, and we want to make him known, we want to make his power known, we want to see him glorious, we want to see him receive the kingdom and all the honor that he deserves, that is what helps people see that the gospel means something. That is what helps people see that the gospel isn't just something that people believe so that they can take on good morals, but that it does something to your life, and it changes you, and it, and it requires you, it makes you, out of love, want to be the most godly person that you could ever possibly be because you want to be like Christ. You want to take all the sin that is in the way and you want to get closer to Christ. You should be striving, grasping with all of your being to try and be like Christ. Not because it has any gain for you, but because you love him. And every sin that you allow to be in the way is the thing that pushes you further and further away. Your love for Christ should cause you to despise your sin and to say, no, I don't want you. You're the worst. You're the thing that's keeping me from Jesus, the one I love. And because of that, you go away from me. 
to be as godly as possible, to desire to love him with all of our hearts and all of our lives is what we should be striving to do and what we should be encouraging those who are younger and those who are older, everyone around us to do as well. If you love God, you will love his people and you will encourage them to do the same. We are not to hoard it to ourselves. We are to pass it on. Another form of formal discipleship outside of those, one on, those intentional one-on-ones where you are doing that action of striving to be as godly as possible is small group discipleship. That's another form, that's another form of it, right? And um, you guys know that as flock groups, right? And it is, it is normally typical within churches for small group discipleship groups to be single gender, and there is certainly nothing wrong with that. Okay, hear me. There's nothing wrong with single gender small groups. But we opted for mixed gender flock groups because we believe that there is value as a fellowship group to learn to care for both brothers and sisters on a regular basis. Because together, as male and female, we represent the image of God. Right? That's Genesis 1. And that's what God calls good. Sacrificial service, care, and encouragement is not something reserved for only the members of your same, same gender. In fact, it can be extremely beneficial to interact with people of the opposite gender when it comes to thinking about how faith intersects with life because we bring different things to the table as we think and as we talk. Right? You guys should be past the age where you're, surpri- you're not surprised that guys think differently than girls and girls think differently than guys. Right? You should be past that. And if you didn't know that, well, they do. Now, because we bring different things to the table, it's actually really helpful for us because it gets us to think about things that we might normally not think about. And these studies might not necessarily have the same depth or pointed application that we could have if we were a single gender group, but this is just another way that we can be sanctified together. Right? Both are good and both are necessary for the entire body to build into each other as, we've, as was evidenced by how Apollos... He was preaching the gospel, and then Priscilla and Aquila, right? So Priscilla, a lady, and her husband, Aquila, heard what he was saying and said, you got that mostly right. Here, come over here. Let's, let us teach you the more accurate way. And then once they did, he was out there, and he was really, really effective to the point where some people were saying, I am a Paul. I am a Paulos. There's evidence within the scriptures that there are many, many godly ladies who are just as important as the men in building people up to Christ-likeness. Right, so there is, a, there is a time and a place for both. And if you are in single-gender ministries at the moment, that's okay. I'm not saying that you need to leave those and join, rejoin flock groups because sometimes we need things more directed at us. Right? We need freer conversations so that we can minister to one another in those ways. But I'm also saying don't necessarily think that mixed gender small group discipleship is not valuable. It is valuable because it forces you to learn and how to consider other people, to hear what they have to say and actually be nice and not be mean and say, well, I don't care what you have to say, right? We have to be considerate of the other things that people are saying and understand 
where they're coming from, even to see how God has, teach, has taught them and, enter, and see things through their eyes and come to an understanding of the perspective that God has given them so that we can have a greater picture of who God is. And that's why it's not just all single gender things. Now, finally, that leads us to our third commitment of joint heirs, and that is a commitment to care for the people of God, a commitment to care for the people of God. The previous two commitments feed into this third commitment perfectly because a commitment to God's word leads to a commitment to loving God, and a commitment to loving God leads to a commitment to loving people, right? And that makes us committed to pointing them to greater godliness as well. In 2 Corinthians 5.14 to 15, Paul is describing the ministry that he and his team have. And he writes this. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. This verse follows Paul addressing a claim that he is out of his mind. And he says, I'm not out of my mind. I'm not. The things that I do, I do for the Lord. And I do it for you. And in fact, the thing that's that's driving me is not craziness. Craziness is not what's driving me. What's driving me is the love of God. I'm sorry, the love of Christ. That is the thing that controls me. That is the thing that motivates me to do my ministry and to work so hard. And brothers and sisters, we need to model such a conviction. Our love for Christ ought to drive our love for one another so that it is noticeable to other people. When the love of Christ controls you, and that is the reason why you do your ministry, that's how you know that you're not looking out for your own selfish ambition. Because the thing that's controlling you is not whether people will praise you, not whether people will uh, think well of you or if they'll finally get off your back about serving. But the thing that controls you, the thing that motivates you to serve is a love for Christ. That's what we should all be striving for, is having the love for Christ be the thing that drives us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 to 15, urges us to admonish the unruly, to encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. And we're also to make sure that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. This is the way that we care for one another. We get into their lives. We we get on eye level with them. We enter into their worlds and we help them. And we, we try and understand so that we can help them. So we can help them see how the Bible does have answers for what they're struggling with. How it is authoritative and sufficient. James 2 also reminds us about care for people. Uh, it warns that we're not to show preference for those members who are seemingly more honorable because they have more wealth or social status. Reminding them it's a sin of partiality because God cares for the poor as well as he cares for the rich. Right there, and, then it, and then James sums it up by saying, you are to remember that we are to love our neighbors just as we love ourselves. And 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11 says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. 
above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterance of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The authors of the New Testament in various ways and in various contexts exhorted people to the same call, exhorted Christians to the same call to love one another. To genuinely, as a result of the gospel realities that we've experienced, love one another and to spur one another on, to have consideration of other people, right? to be observant and not to be so self-absorbed that you miss the person who's sitting in the corner all by themselves. Brothers and sisters, there should never be someone who sits alone in our ministry. There should never be someone who sits alone. There should never be anyone who is off on their own. If you're in the middle of a conversation, bring the conversation over to them. We are to love one another genuinely, care for them, care for their good, and make sure that they know that when they're here, they, will, they should never leave thinking that they're not a part of community, that they're not cared for here. We may not love one another well, but we are not without excuse to try and to love one another. And I know that can be difficult for us to put into practice at times, but remember, brothers and sisters, these are not suggestions. These are not divine suggestions. These are commands to love one another, to care for one another, to bear one another's burdens. And even though we may fail to practice these things at times, make no mistake, we have no legitimate excuses, whether it be personality, fatigue, giftedness, busyness, whatnot, to practice loving one another. No excuse whatsoever. When it's a command, we have no excuse, even if we don't feel like it. Because when we choose not to, what is that? What does God call that? It starts with a D. What does God call it? Disobedience. Disobedience. When you know what you ought to do and you do not do it, it's disobedience. And I'm not trying to make you, f to necessarily, well, okay, I am trying to, a little bit to make you feel bad, but I'm not trying to do this to like really like slap you upside the head, stab you in the back and be like, see, I told you, your personality doesn't matter, or I don't care how busy you are. I'm not trying to do that. But what I am trying to help you see and understand is that when the word of God says something, you know what it says, you know that you ought to do it and you don't do it, it is sin. And if you don't understand how serious that is, that's why I'm telling it to you now. So that, brothers and sisters, we can stop sinning. 
Now, I, I mentioned this in my Sunday sermon. There are times when I do not feel, when I personally do not feel like doing what God wants me to do. I relate with you on that level. Okay, there, there are times when I am so angry that all I want to do is to stay angry. To feel like I have the right to be mad. That I have the right to feel slighted. That I have the right to be angry and to let that anger be known. So that person knows, you don't mess with me. There are times when I feel that. And the moment those thoughts come up in my mind, guess what my conscience does? Mm-mm. You can't say that. Right? The moment I start thinking of those things, and the moment that I become aware of those things, no, you can't say that. That ain't right. What does God say? How does God want you to respond? And then I complain against my own conscience. I say, why can't you just let me be angry? Just for a little bit longer at least. That's the battle that's going on in my own mind, in my own heart at times. Right? Where my sinfulness wants to take over, and sometimes it does a little bit, but then, I, but then God sovereignly, graciously uses my own conscience against me and helps me realize, Mm-mm, no, you cannot think that. You cannot say that. And even if you don't want to right now, you better say sorry. And you better repent. Brothers and sisters, that is, uh, sorry, I'm, I just realized what I just did. I'm not trying to prop myself up as I've figured it out yet, okay? Um, but the reason why I, I use that example is because, brothers and sisters, there is another way. You do not have to let your sin take over. And you do not have to let what your heart desires most uh, you, don't, you don't have to let that win. And the reason why you need to know your Bibles is so that when you say wrong stuff, when you think wrong stuff, the Bible's talking back at you and saying, Mm-mm, no way, you cannot do that. You cannot think that. You cannot say that. And that's at times what we are called to do for one another too, right? When you hear your friend going off and venting. Right? Sometimes you let them talk a little bit. Right? You just hear them out. But what is venting, really? Think about this. What is venting? It's an expression of sinful anger. Right? That's, that's literally, that's what it, the picture is, right? You're venting it out, right? You're letting it out. Right? That's sinful anger. And so when you say, no, 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 don't, don't correct me, just let me vent, right? Just be quiet and let me get it off my chest. What we're saying is, leave me alone and let me sin. <laughs> Never really thought about it that way, did you? Have you? That's what we're saying, right? And think about it this way, too. When people vent to you, do they ever repent of what they say? Do they ever ask for forgiveness for the things that they've said, for the wrong things that they've said about other people? or the wrong things that they said about God? Hardly ever. Hardly ever. When they're venting, they're letting their heart be known. So brothers and sisters, this is where we have to lovingly confront them and correct them. And there are times when you might not say something, and that's okay, because you don't want to be slapping everyone every time they sin, right? But there, there are times where we have to come alongside and you say, no, brother, 
sister, I love you too much to let you sin. I love you too much to let you continue to think that. And that's not okay. So this is the kind of love that we have for one another, right? It's not only just meeting each other's needs, but it's a love that wants the best of other, for other people, wants godliness for the, other, for the people around us. Now, uh, going back out to the, to the practical aspect of you know, meeting one another's needs while we're here, you know, some of you have noted that the, the lack of assigned small groups after our study of the word uh, together has made it a little more difficult to practice loving one another because the people that we are encouraged to speak with uh, may at times be unfamiliar with, um, to us or they're not as talkative. Um, and especially if you're newer here, it may be a little harder to establish relationships. It is harder to establish relationships um, because you're meeting new people all the time. Yeah, and I understand that. And um, you know, I, pol- I apologize that it's a little more difficult to form relationships as a result of that. Because I remember when I was looking for a church in seminary, um, how difficult it was to be in a new church, right? To see all these people who have relationships, and I'm the only one, I'm on the outside looking in, I was like, I don't know any of you. And I'm just kind of here off by myself, and so I'm just going to have to try and insert myself into your conversations. And so I understand that, and I, and I sympathize with you if you found it difficult to bond here, and I am sorry that it is a little more difficult, but let me say this, part of the reason why we no longer have assigned small groups after our Friday night sermons is because we want to encourage more relationships to happen outside of official structure, okay? We want to encourage for more relationships to occur outside of official structure, and I know that may sound a little strange because you could argue that it doesn't encourage more relationships because it is hard to plug in and get to know people, but what we've envisioned, and actually, I really love the fact that Tim Chin um, have ha, uh, brought brought up this discussion question um, time, uh, very intentional discussion question time for us because it actually encourages us to turn to the people next to us. And actually, looking out, most of you know each other, but that's okay, right? But it encourages us to turn to one another. And if there's someone new, you talk to them, right? Instead of just kind of like, okay, you're dismissed, go talk to each other, right? So I, I'm really thankful for that adjustment because I think it's really helped. And, you know, um, something someone said to me, too, that was helpful is that because we're talking about what was just taught with one another, it allows for us to begin to process it right away instead of, you know, maybe later. Um, Because most of the time, given the choice or the opportunity, we don't process it later, right? So um, um, this person was just really encouraged and thankful for that. Um, But the reason why we want you guys to practice building relationships outside of structure is because we want to encourage you. This is a, and this is a constant encouragement, right? To break out of your shell and to show hospitality to those who are new. We want for you to not be comfortable, but to be on the lookout on how you can care for other people. Or to not necessarily always go back out to your same friends, but to think about, hey, I haven't talked to this person in a while. Maybe I should go talk to them. And it's a little freer that way. And part of that hospitality, especially for those of you who are a little less talkative, is to introduce newer people to your friends. Right? It's like, okay, well, I don't like to talk that much, so I'll talk a little bit. Like, hey, well, you know, what's your name? Um, what do you do? Cool. Hey, let me introduce you to my friends, and then just hope that they take over. Right? Um, and you know, when you do that, when you do that. They usually will take over, right? And if you don't know who will take over, I can point you out to the people who will, um, right? But you're building bonds, 
right? You're, you're allowing for that new person to actually be exposed to more people. So they're not standing off on their, on their own, on, on the side, and thinking, I have no one to talk to here except for the people who brought me here or whatever. And um, you're giving them faces. You're giving them people. You're giving them names. You're helping them connect, right? Um, you are all adults here. I'm not going to baby you or condescend to you. In the business world, if you have new people at work, what do you do? Run away? No, right? If you turn your back and you just go to the, to the back room and you don't, you don't work with them, just kind of like, geez, what did I do, right? No, you introduce yourself, right? And look, I understand that you don't feel like it at times, right? Well, pretend you're at work, put on that, work, that socialization face and go minister to them, okay? It's kinda, it kind of is work anyway. But do it out of love, okay? Um, anyway, um, another part of that hospitality, in addition to just kind of folding people into our conversations, is um, you know, whether it's a visitor or even someone that you know needs a little extra uh, encouragement or fellowship, is meeting, meeting them outside of church. Meeting them outside of church to have deeper fellowship. Sometimes it's too crazy to have deep fellowship here. Why? Because we're loud. And there's too many of us. And you cannot have deep conversations here, yeah? And even if you put yourself in one of those rooms, you hear us in the, in the ceiling, yeah? <laughs> so, brothers and sisters, unless you are in constant fellowship with other believers in church, you should find that the amount of fellowship that you get here on a Friday night and on a Sunday morning is not enough. You hear, you hear that? You should feel like it's not enough. Good. It isn't enough. If the whole of your Christian life is summed up as showing up on Fridays and Sundays, and that is it, okay, maybe your flock group day too, right? And you don't open your Bibles to feed yourselves. You don't listen to sermons. You don't pray. Most of us don't. You don't have occasional meetups with fellow believers to catch up. Then you are spiritually starving yourselves. You are spiritually starving yourselves. I know that it is hard at times to open up your Bibles. Why? Because when I get here to work, more often than not, the first thing that turns on is my computer, and the first thing I usually open is my email. And I'm not disciplined enough to do it while I'm sleepy and at home, so I do it here. But I know how easy it is for me to neglect my own devotions and just get to work. And some of you don't have that luxury to do your devotions before you do work. And so I know it's hard. But brothers and sisters, your Christian lives should not be summed up by the fact that I, hey, I, sh- I showed up on Friday night, and I was here on Sunday for service, and then I left. If that's the sum of your Christian life, or, you know, and even if you had fellowship, a little bit of fellowship in the, in the middle, if that's the sum of your Christian life, that's not enough. And what, what I mean by that's not enough, I mean you're forgetting that it's not just Christ at the top of the list and then all your other priorities come down. It's Christ in every single priority on your list. Right? He transcends everything. He is in everything. This is not a priority list. It's a lifestyle that you live out. You meal prep to the glory of God. You, you, you brush your teeth to the glory of God because you have to be a good steward of your mouth, right? Um, 
you go to work to the glory of God. Because you understand that the way that you work, the way that you conduct yourself, the way you interact with other people, that is all a testimony of what God has done in your life. Right? When you study, for those of you in grad school, you study to the glory of God. And I understand some of these things you would not or you're just tired of learning and you just wish that the midterm was over so you don't have to deal with it anymore, right? Because it's not going to come up in your career later anyway. You do that to the glory of God. You convince yourself that even if you don't care about this, that you're going to do your best to the glory of God to love studying this thing that you hate so that God can be glorified in your effort. Because you know that's a prerequisite anyway. You know you enrolled in it. And even if it wasn't a prerequisite, you enrolled in the class, so it's your fault. Right? So to be a good steward, you love that class. You set your mind to love that class, and you do the best that you can to the glory of God. You see, it's in everything. Right? When, that, when that person, that really annoying person with the bad breath comes up to you and they start talking to you, right, and they're really, really close, okay, I'm going to have a con- that conversation to the glory of God too, but maybe just a little bit further away right? (laughs) Everything to the glory of God. Everything to the glory of God. So it's him in everything. That's what I mean by a lifestyle. And that's what I mean, you can't just come here on Friday and Sunday and think that's the sum of my Christian life and I'm good with God because I've showed up and I gave my money and we're good. If you feel like you need more fellowship, if you feel like you need more accountability, I encourage you to seek it out. I encourage you to strive and find fellowship and make it a priority. And if fellowship and accountability is only something that you pursue when it is absolutely convenient for you, perhaps, brother or sister, you might need to change the way that you think about the relationship you have with the body. Or even examine yourself and see if your reasons for not being a part of the body, not serving, not being a vital member of the body is perhaps as a result of selfishness and out-of-place priorities. And remember what, what I said um, on Sunday? It's an inordinate desire. It's not necessarily a bad desire, but you've allowed for, the, for it to take unprecedented, prior, unprecedented priority in your life. And if that's the case, if you examine your heart and you realize that that's what is going on, don't lose heart. Don't despair. Christ died for that too. You can repent. You can change. You can grow in love and selfless service to others. Change is possible all because of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. And knowing that it is God's will for you to grow in your love for him and for others, when you pray that prayer, you know for sure with the utmost confidence that he will answer that prayer and he will help you. That's the kind of prayer that God loves to answer and say yes to. This evening, we've had the opportunity to examine the three core commitments of joint areas of fellowship. There are multiple ways that we could have said it. There are multiple groupings and words that we could have used, biblical passages even that we could have pointed to, but I hope that these three commitments to God's word, to discipleship, and to caring for one another can be the foundation blocks that we can use to grow together as we serve one another, as we move forward as a family until the Lord moves us in a different direction or brings us all home. Now, changes may still come and go. I'm not going to promise that no changes are going to happen ever, right? Because we're constantly trying to figure out and see, you know, what are the better ways uh, to make sure that we can care for you and, and 
um, you know, I, I would encourage you to remember that our loyalty is not to leaders. Our loyalty is not to philosophies. It's not to business models, not to, a, uh, not to the, the biggest friend group, but it's to God and to Scripture. Right? Our loyalty is to God and to Scripture. And if you have concerns with anything that we do, if you think that we're going in, in the wrong direction, that we're not bringing glory to God, that the things that are driving us are actually not found in the Word, please you know, feel free. Come up and talk to me, Pastor Ray, to Bill, any of the counselors here. We want to hear what you have to say. Right? We, are, we want to be accessible to you. And if you think that we're doing things that are uh, to the detriment of the glory of God, that dishonor the word, please, please, please let us know. Because it's my earnest prayer that all that we do in this fellowship group is faithful to God's word. And that any programs or ministries that we come up with in the future, uh, that those programs and, and ministries will bring God great glory. And I, I don't want to do things just because or because we've always done it in this particular way. I want to make sure that everything that we do is careful, it's thought out, that it's aimed, to trying, uh, it's aimed at trying to be as faithful to God as possible, to be as honoring to him as possible, to glorify him as much as possible, so that when we appear before God, he will commend us all and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That is what ultimately I would want for every single one of you in your lives. Is for all of us to strive to be as godly as possible and to make ministry here as biblical as possible and as balanced as possible so that in everything God receives the glory. And the attention is not on us, but it's on him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are grateful to you for just your loving kindness towards us, for your grace, and for how you have really just been so kind to this fellowship group. We're grateful for all the, the things that we've been able to experience together as a family, and we pray that, uh, Lord, you would allow for us, whether it's through trial or whether it's through uh, good times to continue to try to be faithful, to continue to try and bring you as much glory as possible. Father, we pray that you would use your word, that you would allow for it to have its effect, uh, its intended effect on our heart, to cause us to be the mature men and women that you want us to be, so that in everything, Christ will be glorified. We pray uh, for all of this to be done uh, to the praise of your glories in your sons, and we pray. Amen.